Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. Do I have a great conversation for you today? I think you're really going to enjoy it. You know, I don't know about you, but I love history. But history is always told to us from a very visual perspective, right? So what if we explored the past through our nose, from the perspective of our sense of smell? That's what we're going to do today. And boy, is it fascinating. We're going to go to China to explore its recent history. My guest has written an incredible book that I hope you'll read. In this book, she documents the eclectic array of smells, the smellscapes, if you will, that permeated China life from the High Qing through the Mao period. So that's roughly from the 18th to the mid-20th century. And she does this by evaluating perfumes, food, body odors, public health projects, consumerism and cosmetics, travel literature, fiction, and political language, which is really fascinating. It means that it isn't a book on the history of Chinese sense per se, but rather, as she says, it's more about encounters through sense. We talk about themes like smell as the stranger, the ambivalence of odor perception, deodorization, and reperfuming. So, whether you know a lot about Chinese history or not, today's conversation is going to give you a new perspective. And it'll definitely leave you longing for more. Let me introduce you to my guest. Shei Lei Huang is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Edinburgh. She received her PhD from the University of Heidelberg and held research positions at Academia Sinica, the Nantes Institute for Advanced Studies, and the International Research Center for Cultural Studies in Vienna. Her research focuses on sensory history and media culture in modern China. She's also the author of a new book, which is what we discuss here today, that's called Sense of China, A Modern History of Smell, released by Cambridge University Press in 2023. I do want to let you know that her publisher is offering a 20% discount through May 31st, 2024. So make sure you go to the show notes and go through the publisher link that's there to get the code and enter it at checkout. All right, so let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Shele Huang. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. So I want to welcome you to an aromatic life. Shule, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to share my book and uh, share my thoughts about smell. Yeah, well, this is a very olfactory rich book that we're going to talk about, which makes me so happy, obviously, since I love our sense of smell. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. we're going to talk all about your book and how you're exploring China through the nose, really. But I want to get to know you a little bit better first. And I, I just want to get your perspective on a few things related to our sense of smell, since you did dive deep into all things olfactory when you wrote this book, right? Yeah. 
So I wanted to ask you, this is what I ask all my guests at the beginning, and I want to get your perspective. What does the sense of smell mean to you? Yeah, there are many directions to answer this question, but uh, yeah, I did give it some thought. And I think most importantly to me, smell or smelling means to be present, to be grounded uh-huh. in this world. Yeah, because yeah. The smell is like, a, like an invisible layer of everything. So through breathing, through inhaling, smell sort of bridges our internal world and uh, the external world. So it makes connections. To me, this is most important. And I realized this even more when I lost my sense of smell completely when I caught COVID for the first time. Yes, I did. I know many people also lost sense of smell. Not everyone. But that is really an experience that, oh my goodness, life suddenly became so bland. I just don't have words to describe it. Because then I I was thinking, okay, this is because we lose connections to the world through Mm -hmm. smelling. So then ironically, it was a time when I was revising the smell book. Oh, (laughs) is that right? So you had written it. You had written it, but you were just revising it. Yeah, it's the final final stage. Mm -hmm. So I think it is the best lesson for a smell scholar, it really, this experience, give me something different, a different perspective to write this book. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine because I'm sure you came into the project thinking about it one way and then that happened to you and suddenly you're like, but wait, this means a lot more now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad my sense of smell is back, (laughs) back a long time. I'm very happy, too, that it is, because I'm sure you appreciate it even that much more now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But let me ask you, actually, then, do you feel like you're someone who was very connected to their sense of smell at a young age? I mean, is that something that your family or you were connected to? As a child, I don't think I consciously thought about smell. So, But uh, I do remember my earliest understandings of the seasons was very uh-huh. much connected to smell. It's like a, I, I can still you know, evoke those sensations in my mind. When spring came and uh, it is the kind of warm scent from the earth. Yeah. It is that, it, it's an abstract smell actually. It's not like the floral smell, not, not, not like that. It's just the, mm-hmm. this abstract kind of warm smell from the earth that remind me Oh, oh, told me, <laughs> because as a kid told me, okay, this is spring. Then summer for me, it's always about the smell of thunderstorm. Because I grew oh. up in Shanghai. This is uh, the region where we had lots of thunderstorms during the summer, like a typhoon, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thunderstorm, the magic thing about thunderstorm is that it feels like a released or liberate all the older molecules hidden in things. That's always how I feel about the thunderstorm. Many people don't like thunderstorms. But I enjoy the smell part of the magic of thunderstorms. So that is summer. It's like it's waking everything up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very good uh, metaphor. And then in terms of autumn, autumn smells of going back to school. (laughs) 
Ah, like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the best kind of student you can imagine who likes school. <laughs> but, but yeah, because, you know, we always have this kind of new paint, the smell of new paint of the classrooms and also the excitement itself has some kind of smell. So that is, true. for me, the season of autumn. Mm-hmm. And when winter comes, winter smells of home, home sweet home. Two particular floral scents are particularly endearing to me. One is in the Chinese daffodil. Um, That is slightly different to daffodil here, because here daffodils not really smell particularly fragrantly, right? But the Chinese daffodil, we grow it in water, and it has the very kind of subtle, beautiful smell. And the other is, we call it a lame. It is, if we translate literally, it's the wax plum blossom. It is uh-huh. probably in the plum blossom family, but the flowers have the texture of wax. But more uh-huh. endearing is the smell. Both smells are very warm, sweet, and yeah, it's just a beautiful. And it, are it, they it, quiet? Sorry, are they? is it a quiet smell or is it a very prominent loud smell quiet i would uh, describe them okay only when you you go near but they definitely have their particular smells you will remember (laughs) so that to me again is paying attention and focusing and being in the present moment as you said about our sense of smell you know you really pay attention to that very quiet smell yes i uh, I guess so (laughs) as a child (laughs) Uh, and if I may say, also, I loved your analogy of the the four seasons, because to me, it's a good metaphor for our sense of smell, that it's not just, uh, you know, the, the typical things people say, oh, the smell of fresh rain, or, you know, or after the rain, or things like that. Yes, all that is is a factor in certain seasons. But you are really projecting a feeling, perception that you have, and all of that is our sense of smell how we perceive things, yeah. how we feel emotionally yeah. about going back to school, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> anticipation and all of that. All of that is tied into our sense of smell. And, you know, we'll get into your book in a minute, but that to me is also very present in, in your book is being reminded that our sense of smell is not just one dimensional, you know, how you perceive smells around you is influenced by so many factors, both emotional and intellectual or cognitive. Yeah, definitely. So as I said, it's like an invisible layer of everything. It's not only about the molecules, it's also about the emotional, you know, and affective and other layers of life political life I talked <laughs> we will get there later yes 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 and we, we will in one minute I just wanted to also when I was doing a little bit of research on you I realized boy have you moved around a lot <laughs> I too. In, your, in your life you're like a little bit like me I did too but you I mean just to let the listener know so you said you were born in Shanghai is that correct yes yes and then you studied there and in Beijing as well yeah. And then you were in Heidelberg, Germany, you were in Taipei, Taiwan, you were in Nantes, France, in Vienna, Austria, and now you're in Edinburgh, Scotland. So what a an amazing life's journey already, and I would say scent journey in a way, right? Yes, <laughs> right, too. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, 
And I love how you always use the olfactory neurons in your book. But I'm curious how your olfactory neurons have been tuned through all of these experiences. So have you observed any interesting things about how your sense of smell has evolved living in all these places? Well, my own olfactory journey, yeah, definitely, I believe my own olfactory neurons have been tuned by these different countries, cities, and the smellscapes, right? Yeah. Um, it feels, feels like I know these places inside out because all the smells have entered my body and formed memories deep down. And uh, all this happened subconsciously. Only when I go back to a certain place, then I realize, oh, I know the city so well, I know this place so well. So I remember, give you an example, I remember years ago, I flew from Taipei to Beijing on a winter day. When I got on the airport shuttle bus in Beijing, there was a particular wintry smell of northern China. I still remember that vividly today even because I suddenly at that time I suddenly realized how long I had been away and how many other smellscapes I had experienced. So I'm sure it's like these experiences just over the years my own olfactory neurons have been tuned to be able to appreciate all the differences. That's why at that point when I smelled the, the Beijing smell, I'm sure my other smell experiences also came in, then I noticed the difference. So that is something I think my olfactory journey has brought me. Let's get into your book, Sense of China, uh, A Modern History of Smell. Congratulations on this most wonderful book that you've written. Thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you so much for, for this very kind word. I think what I love about it the most, I have to say, is that it's not your standard oculocentric exploration of a topic. You're specifically modern China. You know, we're so used to having that oculocentric viewpoint. And so that makes me particularly happy that it's smell focused. And I want to just, if you don't mind, just... Uh, say something about the introduction in your book that you wrote. I think mm-hmm. you stated it so cleverly. You said the book is not a history of Chinese scents per se. It is more about encounters through scents. Chemicals meet neurons. Bodies meet spaces. Self meets other. East meets West. And so on. So it's exactly what your book is about, all those subjects. And it's really a chance to notice how the sense of smell mediates the ways in which historical changes are lived, right? Mm -hmm. So this work for me was a chance to understand history through a different lens. And boy, was it fascinating. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. So I didn't know, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm, I'm ashamed, but I don't know a lot about China. So I really appreciate getting a perspective of China through, at least modern China, through the olfactory lens, because it is so different yet so see I was going to use the word eye opening which is terrible because it's, <laughs> opening. it's so nose opening <laughs> True. our language is so focused on yeah science, it's terrible so <laughs> but, <laughs> it is. but yeah yeah but thank you for that because I, I think just the way you outlined it too if I could give the listener just a brief idea of how you kind of grouped 
this is my German background. I love order. <laughs> now you grouped it, but I just, you know, it's analogous to me to a scent trail, right? It's weaving its way through sensorial history of modern China. So you start by really grounding us in how China smelled in the 18th century yeah. to start this modern olfactory revolution. I love that term, modern olfactory re revolution. <laughs> and then you kind of weave into how various influences start to change the perception of smells, including the de deodorization and reperfuming that took place. And then finally, in, in the third part of the book, we learn about a counter history of Western olfactory modernity. And it's truly fascinating. I hope everyone goes out and gets this book. I hope you have a chance to read it. The link to the book will be in the show notes. So please check that out. But we're not going to be able to go through this entire book, obviously, in this conversation. But I did want to touch on a couple of key um, themes to begin with. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And I want to start with this theme of smell as the stranger. I love that. And I find it so interesting. And there's many, many components of that. But can you explain to the listener what that means? Yeah, sure. I use the word stranger not in a literal sense, but in a particular sense proposed by a sociologist whose name is Sigmund Bauman. He wrote quite extensively on the problems of modernity, including the Holocaust you know, and other matters. And one of his key arguments is that during the modern era, we are too keen to make classification good or bad, enemy or friend, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there are always indeterminate social groups and categories who are present but uh, unfamiliar and uh, who are neither friends nor enemies. So he called this particular figure the stranger. So basically it is in between kind of uh, you know, social groups and uh, person and uh, category. And he further argued that many modern social political problems actually stem from this kind of uneasy relationship with strangers. We don't know how to deal with strangers. We know how to deal with enemies and friends, yes. but we don't know how to deal with strangers. And we always have an impulse to convert unfamiliar strangers into something familiar, something easy to identify. So this is what Professor Bauman argued. But what has all this to do with, uh, with smell? If you've read Alan Corbin's book, I'm sure many of our yeah. listeners have read <laughs> this classic book in olfactory history. So it is a seminal work in this field. And I think you probably are familiar with this master narrative about olfactory modernity. So the key mission of the modern olfactory revolution is about deodorization, the environment, our bodies, and it's also about reperfuming our bourgeois bodies. So basically, mm -hmm. it's about redefining the fragrant and the fall. Yeah. This binary structure of smell then is also used to internalize discriminations in terms of race, class, genders, there are so many examples about how we stigmatize certain social groups with smell, right? Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, so in short, there's no room for the stranger. 
That's the problem. We always yeah. define fragrance and fall, but how about、uh, smells in between? In between, yeah, yeah. You know, I we're going to talk about that in a minute. This ambivalence, right? Yeah. But I wanted to just ask you about this cesspool rose garden、mm-hmm. that you have in your book. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's a really great example. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like the cesspool rose garden metaphor myself as well、yeah. because I I discovered it purely by coincidence because it's from a book I bought in Paris, the Shakespeare and the Company bookstore, the famous bookstore years ago,、right. and、uh, it's just purely by coincidence I I found this example when I started to write this book, and、uh, you know this book is. Bought in Paris, Paris, yes, very you know origin of modern olfactory revolution based on Corbin's book. Yeah, yeah. So it's、so、okay. This story, it is a kind of funny story, and it's a, a good story to illustrate the stranger metaphor. The story is about a Canadian missionary couple who lived in China for four decades in the first half of the twentieth century. They lived in a small town in North China. In this town, there was a stinking cesspool, where all of the town's sewage and waste were drained there. Then, in order to bring some beauty and fragrance to the site, they grew Irish roses around the cesspool, making it a cesspool rose garden. Yes. <laughs> But please imagine the smell in the air. Is it fragrant or foul? Right. I think it probably all depends. Depends on the smelling person, and depends、exactly. on the season. Depends on all sorts of circumstances. So I use this odor mixture as a metaphor because I think it is a vivid incarnation of the stranger figure. It's interesting not only in the material sense, but more so. In the allegorical sense, because the Irish roses can be considered as a metaphor of the Western mission of civilizing the others in the very context、mm. of high colonialism and imperialism at that、yeah. time. But then the local Chinese cesspool posed the constant challenges to such a mission, exactly because the cesspool rose garden produced olfactory strangers, among other things. Yes, so that's what. Yeah, I think in our twenty-first century, in the context of decolonization, it、yeah. is time to unsettle old binaries between fall and fragrant, or any kinds of entrenched dualism. Yes. So this is the kind of deeper layer of thinking when I propose the notion of stranger to reconceptualize smells. I mean, it just—it was perfect. It captured it all, and it makes me think about my own, you know, the here and now. Like you said, it was that time, but you can put all of these concepts, all of these ideas, into the present moment and still find <laughs> analogies yeah. to the、yeah. cesspool rose garden <laughs> everywhere you go. So, thank you for sharing that. Could you tell us about the ambivalence of odor perception? So, this living in the space of ambivalence. Yeah, because、uh, I think our own. Everyday experience, both our common sense and and the science tell us that、uh, smell perceptions are very fluid. Yes, 
We do identify fragrances and stenches for sure, but there are many, many more odors that are ambivalent. We can't really put a, a particular you know, label on them. So it's yeah. not about good or bad. They just give us a texture to our world. And also, our noses actually change attitudes and opinions all the time. Because through learning, experience, memory, and so on, I think we all have this kind of experience. You initially hate one smell, but at some point, maybe you suddenly like it for whatever reason. So this is exactly what I call neuro-tuning or retuning. So it is what the ambivalence of smell perception allows us to do so. Let's get into, let's ground ourselves. I want to ground ourselves in 18th century China. You, you talk about this beautiful and very important novel, Dream of the Red Chamber, right? Which I just, as I mentioned to you, I just bought the translation, the, the book, because it was so interesting to me. And it was so olfactory rich that I said, I need to read this novel. I need to <laughs> I need to immerse myself in this because you obviously can only talk about it a certain amount, right? You know, so yeah, um, it what is. a fascinating book. Yeah, it is a great book. It's a great novel, and I hope you will enjoy it. It takes a little bit of time to get immersed into its world, but once you okay. get immersed into it, you will. I hope you will like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Even the characters are scent-related, right? Yeah. <laughs> their names, and we won't get into all of that. But I just thought it might be interesting for us to understand. Can you give us a general impression of what China smelled like in the 18th century, you know, to ground us in where this olfactory revolution started? Yeah, of course. It's, it's difficult to generalize. I will try my best. Oh. <laughs> uh, but I think I can offer two observations. Well, based on historical source, it's not really my own nose. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the first is about the environment. I think mm-hmm. Chinese towns and the cities could not smell too good at that time because of the lack of modern drainage system and uh, obviously. But they are not as bad as the 19th century because the urban population hasn't reached a tipping point that will cause sanitation crisis. This also happened in the West. That's why we had this olfactory revolution started. But in China, yeah, 18th century definitely didn't really smell that bad. So in the Chinese context, and there is another thing that is, uh, another thing about the traditional Chinese method of waste treatment, it is quite helpful in terms of reducing urban stench. So basically, human waste produced in the city is collected and transported to the countryside as a fertilizer. So some scholars argue that this is generally a balanced ecosystem and also it helps to reduce the stench of the cities and the towns. So this is the smellscape of the environment. Then when it comes to the smellscapes of like homes and interior spaces, I think I have to introduce a little bit a highly sophisticated perfume culture in China at that time in 18th century. Because I always, in my book, I also mentioned that 
you know, the philosopher Kant quite uh, disdain the smell and always yeah. excludes the smell uh. outside of uh, his framework of aesthetics. But I think the Chinese examples definitely show that smell is part of uh, the aesthetic life of people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so in my book, I basically use the dream of the Red Chamber to discuss how incense and aromatics permeate everyday life almost, you know, for all the four seasons, almost all the 24 hours. And of course, this only happened in the elite family. That's uh, the class division we can discuss later. But uh, in the elite households, like different locations, their gardens and their mansions, their chambers, and the different occasions, like those for the Chinese New Year celebration, for the celebration of the Moon Festival, and uh, all sorts of birthday parties, and then the different seasons are all perfumed with different scents that match various symbolic meanings. That's the important part. So, for example, the matriarch of the, the family, Grandma Jia, uh, she, she's the leading authority for the whole family. Mm-hmm. And uh, her sitting room is perfumed by pine and cedar incense, not uh, like any floral incense or something like uh, plum blossom, no, not that. Why pine and cedar? Because pine and cedar in Chinese culture carries the meaning of longevity and uh, nobility. So this uh, perfectly matches her status and age. And the floral scents are probably a little bit, uh, you know, too tender, too young, too feminine. She wants to have this image of being the authority. That's why she perfumes the room with cedar and pine. So this is just one example. There are many, many examples in this book to tell us how they appreciate different smells and the knowledge also to make the right smell for the right occasion. Yeah, there's so many references even in your book referencing Dream of the Red Chamber. So I can't wait to read the novel itself. But can you also talk about Am I pronouncing this correctly? The habao? Yes. The perfume sachet and what role that played. That's fascinating too. Yeah, habao is very important in the Chinese perfume culture. It is equivalent to pomander in Western culture. It's very similar. But uh, mm. habao is normally made with silk. So it's soft. And uh, this, I think, this material texture also gives it some slightly different meaning from Western culture. And it's very versatile and uh, gender neutral. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It can be carried by both men and women and kids. It's a bit like a modern-day perfume, but it also has another function that is about to dispel infection and uh, disease. Think of the Uh Western pomander also has this similar function. Mm-hmm. But there's another interesting thing about herbao in the Chinese context that is that it it has a sort of erotic connotation, mm. functioning as a token of romantic love and sometimes as a gift, you know, to initiate or to suggest the potential sexual liaison. 
So the texture ties in because the silk texture and sometimes the, they even you know make it some erotic pictures as decoration on the texture. So all these visual elements and other textile elements bring in to make her pal a very interesting perfume tool. Wow. Yeah, it's really great. Are they used today now as well? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a widespread practice today, but I mean, I think for kids, probably sometimes it's just as a, as a gift to, oh. yeah, it's a traditional gift, but not really a widespread practice. Okay. <laughs> we have Gucci and uh, we have now number five. <laughs> As we'll, as we'll get into. <laughs> I was just hoping maybe there was some somebody who is still keeping the tradition going, but I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> not, not really. Go to the museum. <laughs> you will find it. Okay. It definitely got deodorized and <laughs> we moved on. All right. So I did want to ask you to mention the story of when Granny Lou visits yeah. Grandmother Zhao. Because yeah. I think that's a very telling story. So could you share that story? Yeah, I love that story because Granny Liu is a comic character in the novel. There aren't <laughs> lots of comic characters in this novel. She's a distant relative to this elite Jia family, and uh, but she's from a humble household. Mm. And she hopes to get some benefits from this wealthy relative. So she paid two visits to the Jia family in this novel. And for the first visit, when she entered the reception hall of the Jia mansion, she was taken aback by the fragrance of the room and noticed that the author, Cao Xueqing, he used a vague term. He just said that, oh, there is some vague kind of fragrance there because this matches the knowledge of Granny Liu. Because... Mm -hmm. She definitely has no idea what kind of perfume it is, right? Yes. But she just felt like she was transported to the heaven. This is oh. how the text tells us. So from this very moment, we clearly see there is a class divide here involved in terms of sense perception or factory perception. And the story moves on. Before she was received by grandmother Jia, she was taken to have a bath to remove any potential malodor. And then she was invited to a lavish banquet. And then after the banquet, she was a little bit tipsy and she also had some problem with the stomach. So she went out to find a toilet and somehow she got lost in the family's meandering garden. And she ended up in the young master Bao Yu's bedroom and fell asleep on his bed. <laughs> the maid, it's a perfect name called Aroma. When the maid Aroma found her, then Aroma smelled, when she entered the room, she smells a heavy stink compounded by fart and wine fumes. So this <laughs> horrified, absolutely horrified her. And she hurriedly, she threw some aromatics on the incense burner. Every room you have an incense burner. So she hurriedly to do this, to deodorize the room. 
So here, this is the the basic story, the smell-related part of the story. And here, I think, apart from class difference, I would also like to highlight smell's power to pollute, to disturb mm-hmm. order, because all the olfactory measures here applied to Granny Liu are not only about deodorizing. They are also about、uh, safeguarding a particular order of things. So actually, throughout this chapter, I discussed all you know different kinds of measures and the perfume applications. They use all these measures to establish a particular order of things within this elite household. But also, smell or the story like Granny Liu also tells tells us that actually it is very fragile. Any order of things we human beings wanted to establish. This kind of fragile, so smell as the stranger, they can easily just break that order. So、yeah. I think the Granny Lucy story is telling us something like that. So let's get into the nineteenth century. We're moving on, and we see lots of travelers arriving in China now, especially the、yeah. Europeans. And、yeah. the Europeans love to write things down. They love、yeah. to write their experience. I love how you talked about how it was a, a chic thing to write your own <laughs> experiences <laughs> down, and they were bringing different perspectives of China, what China smelled like. So you obviously researched what they wrote, and at the same time, you also gave the Chinese perspective, which is really important. But can you please share how the stranger is turned into the other based on the arrival of all of these travelers into China now? Yeah, sure. So you know, the nineteenth-century travel writing has long been studied through the lens of Orientalism, and I、mm. collected about a hundred books、oh. written by as not all physical books; some are digital books because yes, these days、yeah. it's quite easy to acquire those books, and、uh, written by Victorian travelers in China. I'm sure there are more. Reading their depictions of China sometimes made me laugh to tears,、uh, because they are particularly amusing、um, by intention. I think they are hilarious because they meet all your expectations about the very cliched China. <laughs> so that、yeah. made me laugh. Yeah.、Uh, well. But、uh, the sad part about that is that actually many cliches still stay today. I know, yeah, immediate and elsewhere, terrible. Yeah. Anyway, stenches, male odors are definitely very important characters in their travel dramas. Like、okay. dry fish, like opium, like ill-paved streets, open ditches, and unhygienic bodies, and you name it. But my question is: Are these smells entirely foreign to them? The answer、ah, is clearly not. Exactly. Because, as you know, London, Paris, New York, all these industrializing Western metropolises didn't smell good at all during the same period. Right. <laughs> so that I build my argument on this. I think Chinese dancers here are very much awkward strangers to them, reminding them of home and themselves to a certain degree.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they developed a China stinks narrative, in order to dispel the uneasy feeling of encountering the strangers. 
Okay. In other words, they decided to use their pen to transform the ambivalent stranger into a definitive other. If you say China stinks, then it、uh, feels like it means we don't, right? Right, and we are superior. Yes, way, yes, that's yes, the, yes. the tactic, the power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then,、yeah. for that purpose, that also it's so funny. They really displayed remarkable skills in terms of rhetoric. They use hyperbole, use sarcasm, use sensationalism, and many other tactics to portray an orient and oriental smells for their domestic readers. Yeah, check out the some way, of the books. They are really still fun to read. Yeah, I, I should. I mean, but you and you go into detail into all these different. Ways they describe it, so it's really fascinating. Just in your books, you know, we're covering this very <laughs> generalized, but you go into much more detail about how that is so. But it's fascinating, really fascinating.、Yeah, it is fascinating material. Yeah, it really is, and it, it it again goes to show how these ideas and these things you say, you know, they're still present today. Yeah, even though this is. Back in the 1800s, yeah, <laughs> we're in the 21st century now,、yeah. and yet we still have these same ideas, unfortunately.、Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about deodorization now. So I love this history of the evolution of Shanghai that you introduce, and I really I. I Can't wait to go to Shanghai now because I just want to just have this. <laughs> I have this image of what it used to be and what I'm sure it is now in, in its modernity. But it's really a fascinating and exemplary representation of this concept of deodorization, which was starting to happen and was changing the smellscape of China. So you talk specifically about the role water played here. So can you talk about what significance water played for the Chinese? Before this international settlements near Shanghai were created, kind、yeah. of what water meant before. Sure, I chose water simply because I can't cover everything. Of course, <laughs> but the water definitely played a very important role in that region because Shanghai is located in the lower Yangtze River, so that area is at the sea level. So that's why they, we have a very extensive network of waterways, and water traditionally plays an important role in people's life in every aspect. You know, used for cooking, drinking, washing, irrigation, travel, and transport of goods. Yes. But in the European theory of sanitation, water, especially stagnant water, is often associated with Miasma and disease, especially in the nineteenth century. So that's why when they came and、uh, established a settlement in Shanghai, water became a significant target for them to deodorize, to sanitize the environment according to their ideas. Yeah, but that's for sure at odds with Chinese concepts, habits, and、uh, interests in some occasions. And yeah, this tension is one of the things I discuss in detail in this chapter. Because these international settlements, they were allowed, right? But as long as they kept it out, there was a wall around Shanghai. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And these international settlements, you have a great map in your book, but they are just outside of this wall. Yeah. And 
they kind of, the Chinese let these international settlers, the French, the English, everybody else, let them do what they needed to do, yeah. <laughs> what they wanted to do, but it was only in this particular area. And then, so how did the sanitary engineering, this technology that they brought in, what role did that play in the colonial deodorization of Shanghai? Yeah, sanitary engineering is one of the hallmarks of Western modernity in the 19th century. And uh, the most remarkable achievement is the invention of the underground drainage system. We know Mm. that actually we still benefit from this technology today. And it definitely made a revolutionary impact on modern cityscapes, smellscapes, and uh, public health, and uh, even just uh, our perceptions about the city. Yes. Surprisingly or not, Shanghai was not significantly behind London, New York, Paris in terms of building this underground system. The initial project started in Shanghai was in the early 1860s. And London started to build the, the underground drainage system in 1859. So that is almost, you know, the same pace. And in the Shanghai case, the funds were raised locally, but technologies, key materials, like uh, Dalton's ceramic uh, drain pipes, you know the brand Dalton, right? It is, we still (laughs) use it these days for the crockery. (laughs) I have a Dalton plate (laughs) using (laughs) But at that time, they produced the best drain pipes in the world. And these drain pipes were imported to Shanghai to build the, the underground system. And uh, then not only materials, but also engineers were sometimes went to Shanghai to help with this uh, project. And moreover, there is a team of professionals guaranteed the management of this system, such as the sanitary officers and the surveyors, all supported by colonial power. So this system is non-heard of in traditional China. Traditional China it had a very different system of managing the city and the environment. So then this project of deodorizing Shanghai was very successful, making Shanghai's foreign settlement a modern, Western-looking, Western-smelling <laughs> yeah. enclave for residents and, and the commerce. So it is a connected world using sanitary technology. Yeah, I mean, it started on the outside. Then I guess the people of Shanghai realized, oh, we need to also, you know, I think the wall was starting to crumble, wasn't it? The, yes. The wall and inside so it eventually went away and they realized, oh, we need to bring in this technology inside Shanghai as well. And that shifted not only the geography of odor, but it also shifted the smellscape. <laughs> yes, yeah, this is uh, something I think many other parts of the world, we shared this kind of uh, stories in colonial history. Yeah. So in this uh, Shanghai's case, as you just mentioned, the foreign settlements were established outside the old city of Shanghai, surrounded by a wall and uh, a moat. And then the modernization projects of the foreign settlements actually added a lot of pressure to the native city. Yeah. Because the foreign trade and the commerce dramatically increased urban population. And then this caused the sanitary 
and environmental crisis, especially to the native city, because it wasn't designed for the scale of urbanization. Right. So when the foreign settlements were deodorized because of the modern sanitary system, and odors were sort of relegated to the native city and the suburbs, especially through the connected waterways. So water played a role here. Yes. Then apart from the physical change, it was also a time of rising Chinese nationalism caused by a deep sense of humiliation when China was repeatedly defeated by Western powers in that century. So against this backdrop, Chinese community leaders, especially those Confucian scholars, they considered the Mao order as a manifestation of China's deficiency and shame. So then they deployed their own resources to try to modernize and deodorize Shanghai's native city. One remarkable step, as you just mentioned, was to demolish the city wall and filling the moat. That was a very big project at that time. And based on that, they also built underground system of drain pipes. Mm. The most ironic thing is this. When I found this material, uh, I I lost my words how to describe it because... They used the very bricks from the ancient city wall to build the drain pipes. <laughs> what, a, yeah. what an irony and what a, a symbolic gesture. Exactly. Modernity definitely has won this battle, it appears. But uh, my question is, did modernity manage to really overcome the orders? I think probably not. Because in my book, I used a map of Shanghai's slum districts to show how the city center was deodorized, but the stenches were dispelled, reaccumulated in the outer rim of the city where the poor lived. Yeah, so this is yeah. a kind of story we always talk about in a tri- triumphant tome, how modern sanitation, deodorization enhanced people's life. That's definitely true, for sure. But uh, we should not forget about this kind of differentiated deodorization. And it is still the case in today's world. Say, yes, I mean, if I think about homelessness and, you know, yeah who are on the margins of society living in these big metropolises. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's still happening. <laughs> Definitely. Moving on to we've deodorized, now we're <laughs> re-perfuming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfuming started happening, which again changed the olfactory smellscape of China. So this was a period now where synthetic perfumes were being created and cosmetics, and they were entering the country. Can I just mention crazy statistic that you have in your book? So just to give the listener an idea, between 1891 and 1901, so within a 10-year period, soap imports increased six times and perfumery imports increased three times. Yes. So how were foreign brands influencing the Chinese olfactory neurons? Yeah, I was shocked as well by yeah. the statistics when I pieced them together by leafing through volumes after volumes <laughs> of import-export reports, those dull wow. numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to thank 
those uh, colonial uh, officers, you know. They Who made records. Just, yes, they made <laughs> records, exactly. So when I eventually pieced together the statistics and I think, oh gosh, what a fine example to showcase how colonial capitalism marched forward and conquered the globe, in this case, mm-hmm. in our, even our, you know, neurons. Right, right. Yeah, so I think in this chapter, I basically tell a story about how different social, political Actors turned the smiled stranger into friends in this case. Mm. As you know, the 19th century, we saw the fast development of the modern cosmetics industry in Western Europe yes. and North America. Many brands we use today actually were, uh, were you know, from them at that time. And this uh, modern cosmetics industry, we have the chemical processes and the global trade played a very important role in its development. It feels interesting, those capitalists seem to know very well our olfactory neurons are fast <laughs> learners. <laughs> yes, yes. So, the, uh, I, yeah, they did two things. So physically, they built an extensive trading network in China and around the world. And they sell cosmetics in pharmacies, department stores, and even village vendors' carts. So then, but more importantly, I think they also used newspaper advertising, used billboards, posters, and other memes to spread the ideas of an ideal modern body and sense. Mm-hmm. So neurons were rewired through both physical contacts of new odors and the education of the mind. Right, it's that connection. It's the physical, the emotional, the intellectual. It's all connected. Yes. Fascinating. And then the national brands, though, were also gaining favor and growing, right? So they were further rewiring the Chinese olfactory nervous system. Tell us about that. Yes. The Chinese domestic beauty industry started to take off in the early 20th century. And I think there were two new aspects added to the dynamics of neural rewiring. One is the spirits of nationalism. I just mentioned nationalism. So at that time, we saw a current of widespread national goods campaigns. And the domestic brands promoted their own commodities, playing this card. And then the other aspect is about using Chinese indigenous flowers and essences. This certainly makes economic sense. They are cheaper and, you know. Don't they have meaning too? Yeah. I think technology-wise, it's not that difficult. They already, you know, develop some kind of distillery and that kind of technology to make flowery essences. Right. Yes, and these smells certainly enriched the language of perfume and beauty. Some Chinese people's favorite floral scents, such as earlier I mentioned the Chinese daffodil and the wax plum blossoms. And we also have the osmanthus. Do you know osmanthus? Yes. Uh, Yeah, it is an autumn flower and uh, 
so fragrant, and the Chinese people like this osmanthus smells so much. <laughs> so and also gardenia and magnolia, these Chinese people's favorite scents entered into cosmetics. And interestingly, actually, in today, the twenty-first century, you know, there is a massive new wave of Chinese domestic uh, perfume manufacturer perfume market at the moment. Oh, nice! And they yeah. started to reuse this kind of traditional Oriental smells to make their trendy brands, trendy products. Yeah, we are going oh, back, nice. circles back, but now in a very different context. Right. I mean, you could keep writing, right? It's, it continues <laughs> to evolve, this olfactory modernization. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. Well, let's get into the 20th century. So as you get into the 20th century, you reveal how Mao Zedong's reign was heavily influenced by smell. And this was fascinating to me because nobody ever talks about that here. I never <laughs> hear anything about that. So you call it the politics of scent. And there's a lot of topics around this. So we weren't going to get into all of them. But could you just share some of Mao Zedong's olfactory tactics, including Mao speak, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I have a bold statement. <laughs> I think okay. Mao's okay. political power is built on his intuition. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure whether other scholars would agree with me. There are lots of experts on the, on the subject. But I'm convinced when I went through Mao's own writings, especially his ingenious use of smelly words to enhance the efficacy of critique and mobilization. So Mao is not the kind of politician who only, you know, use big grand concepts and words. He's very down to earth. He likes to use people's language. And the use of smell is definitely part of this strategy because he used people's language. He wanted to overthrow the older elite system of Chinese governance and wanted right. to do something revolutionary and new. And smell or the smelly language give him the power to do so. Yeah. For example, he gave intellectuals a nickname he called them stinking number nine. Why number nine? Because he identified the nine categories as those political undesirables we should overthrow. Then intellectuals are at the bottom of that. Right. <laughs> and right. that's not enough. We need to add a stinking number nine. You know, this reminds me of Trump, sorry, but he oh, has yeah. the same tactic. It's not smell-based, but it made me think of this, you know, modern representation yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah you are absolutely right. When I read those <laughs> writing, I was also thinking about Trump. Yeah. Because it's he, populism. He, it's populism, exactly. Yeah. And it's about, it, to me, it reminds me of like grade school, being in the schoolyard and just giving yeah. people, you know, random names and just... Yeah, uh, yeah, the tactic yeah. of that. So, it but is. in his case, in Mao speak, he was using smell words, which I it's fascinating. Yeah, there are so many. For example, he in the uh, late nineteen forties, he warned Americans 
that are collaborating with the nationalist party, that is, that is the communist party's rival, right? Is mm-hmm. that collaborating with the nationalist party will lead lead you to get trapped in the deep and stinky cesspool? So the cesspool metaphor comes back. There's, yes, see, it all comes back. <laughs> Yeah, so the, there are numerous such examples in Mouthspeak and its impact on Chinese people's social and political life during that period was tremendous. So creating what I called the political paranoia, political ruthlessness and the political rudeness. To a degree, yeah. I think these political genes have still remained in oh. Chinese politics today. Interesting. Yeah, not a, not a in the same way, but uh, there are similarities. You you notice them more now because of this research that you did, yeah. probably, right? You can notice them. Yeah. Well, can you also explain the political tactic that involved to stinkin? Yeah, that's a great example to illustrate Mao's political tactic. I'm glad you picked this up. Um, to stinkin, this is a neologism coined by Mao's Mao himself, I think, and uh, his propaganda machine during the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. Literally, it means to denounce someone and uh, make them stink. I don't know how to translate the Chinese term, and I Uh also coined my term to stink. I like it. I (laughs) I hope it works works because... Yeah, it works. Perfectly well, yeah. So then at that time, it was used so frequently in political slogans and propaganda texts. You know, one of the key features of that era is a massive purge of disobedient party members, intellectuals, and class enemies. So the word stinkum comes as handy because it operates at the intuitive sensorial level. I read some modern scientific papers. Modern science has shown that if you associate someone with stink repeatedly, then the neurons will be wired to form a negative association or negative assessment of this person. Uh-huh. So I had a wild imagination. I, I think if we were able to conduct a brain scan of the Chinese masses at that time who witnessed the, the smelly campaigns to stinking enemies, I wonder whether we might see their changing neural activities. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's all connected. I mean, yeah. what we know about smell now, yeah, in the olfactory yeah. system. I think so. Definitely. Well, there's so many more things we could talk about with this book. We could go on and on, but I hope we've covered a good number of them and we've gone through the different periods. I guess the the only question I wanted to ask you just in general, if you take a step back after this book was in your hand and you finished and you kind of said, ah, you know, what was the, what's kind of the biggest takeaway for you from writing this book? Oh, for myself, my... Goodness, that's a difficult question to answer. But I do hope that after reading this book, the readers will appreciate more the diversity of smells as strangers, as well mm-hmm. as people's cultures associated with them. Because as I said, between fragrant and fold, there's a 
full spectrum of sense odors and perceptions and emotions evoked by the smells. I think we should all appreciate the dynamic, invisible layers of life smells bring to our physical world and inner spaces. And then, of course, if this book can intrigue you, making you want to know more about Chinese history, Chinese sense, that's even better. This is something I think I hope this book will create, will bring the readers. It worked for me. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, I immediately went out and bought Dream of the Red Chamber to start there, to ground myself. And I'm sure I will continue and I will explore when I hear and read things about China. I'm going to take a new perspective and not accept things for what they are. I think you've done a wonderful job of doing just that, of getting people more intrigued and wanting to learn more. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. I always like to ask my guests three questions at the end. Are you ready for the three questions that I did share with you ahead of time? I I can't wait to hear more. Yes. Um, I like your questions a lot. Oh, good, good. So tell me, first of all, what's your favorite smell right now? Any smell in the whole wide world. Yeah, there are lots of smells, but uh, I decided to say this. Taiwanese oolong tea. Ooh, nice. But it's not the tea leaves and also not the final tea. Okay. It is something in between. You know, when you prepare oolong tea, you first add a little bit of hot water and let the tea leaves sit for something like 30 seconds. And mm-hmm. then you drain the water. Okay, then smell it. Smell the tea leaves. Ah. This is the best smell and my favorite smell right now. Oh, I'm going to have to try that. Yeah, try that because it is somehow the hot water release. It feels like a release, the, the liberate the, all the life, the essence of of the whole tea trees or the, all the labors, you know, adding into it. So you can, and, uh, but then going back to the exact smell, it is the milky, subtle fragrance. It is just uh, like heaven. <laughs> I like that smell. <laughs> yeah, I think it's nice because it's not the diluted smell yet. Yes. Right? It's, yeah. it's exactly in between, as you say. It's not yes. the dry leaves. It's not... The full dilution, or you have another perception, but it's that in-between. I love it. You're just bringing the dry leaves to life. Yes. Almost like spring. Yeah. Where you're just, (laughs) reminds me of spring. Awakening. Uh, Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So then my second question is, do you have a favorite scent memory that you could share with us? Yeah, I have lots of scent memories, but uh, I would like to talk about this. That is the smell of sunshine and uh, it is associated with a practice we don't do here in the UK. I'm not sure you are doing that in California either. That is to air your duvet under the sun. It's not like a dry duvet. It's not after washing but in winter especially in China especially in the Shanghai area where I grew up, like my mom always during the winter time, when the sun is out, she just takes the duvets, blankets out to air them under the sun. And oh, nice. then 
that night you will have a brilliant, fragrant dream because it feels like the smell of the sunshine all gets inside the duvet, the blankets, and、oh. that wraps you and give you the best sleep in the world. That's harder to do in Edinburgh in the winter. <laughs> Where to? <you? laughs> oh, I can imagine、It's、you missing that.、Then. Yeah, it's too windy and too dark, perhaps、yeah. too. I mean, a lot of gray skies in the winter, right? But、oh, that's wonderful. Is it a warm smell? Is it、yes. a cool smell? It is okay, warm, warm and it is、uh, sunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, how nice! I love that. All right, the last question: What would you say are five smells that best describe you? That is a difficult question. Five—that's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Uh, but I think I would describe myself with wood, woody smells. Nice. Something like、uh, rosewood, you know, sandalwood, agarwood. I like、oh. those smells. But I also think that I would like to consider myself as a kind of a calm person. Yes. Which is probably not always the case, but I would like to. <laughs> You're human. You're human. <laughs> yes, I would like to give myself this imagery to help myself <laughs> to calm down. <laughs> right. Enjoy. You're grounded. Smelling grounded. Yeah, grounded. yeah. 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 Are there any? I mean, are there any citruses in your life? You seem also like a very.、Um, to me, you're very. A sunny person. Oh, thank、know. you.、And、citrus citrus represents that for me. You know, a little bit.、Um, I don't know whether specific citrus smells that you like. Yeah, I like citrus smells. In winter, I always put some orange essential oils in my diffuser, so、ah. this creates warm feelings when I work. And in summer, I would、uh, put、uh, eucalyptus. Yeah. It, oh, no, eucalyptus is not citrus, but、no. you know what I mean. It has this more opening,、uh, yeah, Very opening kind of smell. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Oh, I, I would give you those two as well. <laughs> as an outsider looking in, you know, it's just, I, I think you have a very citrus disposition too, and you're also very approachable. So. I appreciate the eucalyptus in that too. So, <laughs> if I may give you some to describe you. Oh, thank you. That's very nice to hear. Ah, <laughs>、uh, well, Shulei, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And after reading this book, it you know it was even better to be able to talk to you about it. I hope everybody goes out and gets the book and and reads it and and expands their knowledge、uh, from an olfactory perspective. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a really a lovely conversation with you. Thanks for joining me on an aromatic life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be so helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, anaromaticlife.com. Where I share lots of information, including my projects around the sense of smell. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day. <laughs>